the time of year when our society starts to think about Christmas and as we've just begun the first month of summer and the temperatures begin to climb our shopping centers are filled with songs about winter wonderlands and white Christmases and sleigh bells and all that sort of thing which doesn't really make a whole lot of sense in Australia but uh, as the world turns its attention fleetingly to their limited understanding of the birth of the Savior I'm going to be ministering possibly over the next several Sundays along the lines of what that's all about and how we ought to understand that in its fullness, hopefully. Amen. So Genesis chapter 1, if you would stand while we read. We're reading from verse 1. It says, In the beginning God created the heaven and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters, and God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good, and God divided the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And the evening and the morning were the first day. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is alive and powerful. We ask you, Lord, that your will be done in our midst, that you would speak to us and through us. Lord, that you would be exalted and that your will would be done in this place today, we pray. In the name of Jesus, you may be seated. Amen. The biblical account of creation is simply stated as fact. We're not given a step-by-step explanation, breaking down each portion of how God did what he did and why he did what he did so that we might be able to understand it and explain it for ourselves. Rather, the creation account in the first two or three chapters of Genesis is just given to us as a statement of fact. God said it. That's the end of the story. And God declares in Genesis that this is what I did and this is how everything came into existence. Unlike us, God is not insecure and doesn't feel a need to explain himself to us or to justify his actions. He doesn't feel threatened when humanity chooses to question his existence or to look for other ways to somehow understand how it could be possible to start with absolutely nothing and turn it into something. And the best and brightest minds of our world have tried to explain that and there's still that missing jump from having absolutely nothing to having something. However small that something is, getting there from nothing is very hard to understand. But when we consider creation, we need to recognize and remember that there was a point in eternity where the earth didn't exist. There was a point where there was nothing, and then something came into existence. The psalmist said, before the mountains were brought forth, or ever thou hast formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. And so prior to its beginning, prior to creation's beginning, God knew that he was going to do it. He knew that he was going to create the world and everything that is in it and on it. He didn't simply just decide at some point that, hey, here's an idea, let's make a planet. I haven't got anything to do today, let's just make an earth and people and and creatures, and that'd be an interesting way to pass some time. But when he began to create in the beginning of Genesis, 
it was already established in God's mind what he was going to do. And he had already understood how everything that we call history would unfold. As it began, as we look back, he already knew what would happen before it happened. We can look back and see history. The Lord could see history while it was still the future. And so there was a point where there wasn't anything. And then he began to create and we see what we stand on and live on today. Amen. And as each day of the creation week began, God already knew what would take place that day. He wasn't um, working it out as he went along. He knew. When he spent the first day and he separated light and darkness and moved along a bit further and dry land and water and firmaments and skies and all these things, he didn't get up each day and go, well, okay, yesterday we did this, but I'm not sure what to do today. Maybe we should move those mountains. They're in the wrong spot. I think we put them in the wrong place. But God knew every day what he was going to do. He knew exactly what he was going to do. He wasn't winging it, as we would say. But in the book of Romans, it speaks about God as being the one who brings the dead to life and calling those things which be not as though they were. More modern translation of that says that he calls those things which do not exist as though they did. And so God knew everything that he was going to do before he started doing it. He knew when he was going to do it. He knew what he was going to do it. And his whole plan was a part of who he was. And the Bible says, and God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God said, let the waters bring forth. Let this happen. Let that happen. And God said, and he expressed himself in creation. The scriptures let us know that when we speak, when you and I speak, it is more than simply audible sound, but it is an expression of what is contained or what is going on inside our hearts. Proverbs says, For as he thinketh in his heart, so is he. Luke chapter 6 says, A good man out of the good treasure of his heart bringeth forth that which is good. And an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart bringeth forth that which is evil. For of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaketh. Now there are conversations we have that are functional, that aren't necessarily a representation of the state of our heart. Well, you, I don't know, you, you go through the drive-thru at McDonald's and you order a hamburger, it's not really revealing who you are. It's revealing that you're hungry but, and you've got bad taste in food. But other than that, it's not exactly. But the Bible, the principle of the Scripture is that what is in us is what comes out. And the Lord said to the Pharisees, he said, you get so obsessed with washing hands and washing cups and washing plates he said, don't you understand that it's not that which goes into a man which defiles him, but that which comes out. Because our speech is an expression of what's going on inside of us. Even the Apostle Peter, when Jesus was taken to trial, and they said, weren't you one of his disciples? And Peter tried to deny it. They said to him, your speech betrays you. You're from Galilee. You're from the same part of town where he was from. And, he, and even though you're denying it, he said, the way you're speaking actually betrays you. So even in his situation, what came out of his mouth betrayed his identity. And so to repeat the point, speech is more than just air passing over vocal cords and being formed into words. It is an expression of our identity. 
When we talk about our identity, we don't mean our name and our address, but the essence of who we are, of what comes out of us. And so with that principle in mind, when God spoke in Genesis, in Genesis chapter 1, he was expressing himself. And I would go as far as to say that creation was less about audible sound, although I believe there was audible sound when God spoke, and that's a whole other conversation because God was a spirit, didn't even have vocal cords and all that stuff. But creation was more about God expressing and demonstrating himself. When he spoke, he was releasing or expressing what was within him, the power that was contained within God. And God's word has always had the power to create. It is living. The Bible says it is sharp. It is settled forever in heaven. It is constant. It does not change. And so in in the creation, when God spoke, he spoke into a void. He spoke into an environment that did not resist him. And because it was an environment that did not resist him, his word, the power of his word was demonstrated without opposition, without hindrance, without somebody refusing because it was a yielded environment. And in much the same way, when we yield ourselves to him, when we empty ourselves and we become void of our own importance and our own will and what we want, the word of God still has the ability to create life in us. So much more important than plants and animals and mountains and seas, but the life of God in his image creature. But God's word is only able to complete what it can do in an environment that is surrendered to him. Amen. And a yielded environment and a surrendered heart attracts the life-changing power of God. Like some kind of a magnetic force, God is drawn towards somebody that is surrendered to him. Because he didn't just come that we might have life, but that we might have it more abundantly. He, he's so much more interested in producing or creating life in us than he is in making trees and kangaroos and fish in the sea. Because those things are a demonstration of his creative power. We are created to be a demonstration of his image in this earth. Go with me, if you would, to John chapter 1. Some of this is old for some of us, newer for others, and some it's in between the two. In John chapter 1, the gospel of John sort of stands alone a little bit. What I mean by that is Matthew, Mark, and Luke are often what's called the synoptic gospels. Basically means they sort of have a similar pattern. They tell a similar story. John is very different. It it doesn't sort of seem to fit. It's a little bit unique. And in John chapter 1 and verse 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. We could take those three verses and spend the next month teaching on everything that's contained in there, but we won't. John uses the same expression in the beginning that we read in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1. And it's not a coincidence But John is drawing a direct connection between the things that he is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost and what took place in Genesis chapter 1. And 
many of you will know, but some of you may not know, but if you have a King James Bible, you will notice that when we use, the word word is in those verses, it is capitalized. There is a capital W at the start of that word. It's an emphasis. It's placing significance upon it. And it is translated from a Greek word, logos, L-O-G-O-S. Now, again, without delving too deep into it, the idea of logos and what that means is that it talks about a thought or a plan, but not just a thought and a plan, but an expression of that thought and plan. A simple example, while it may not tick all the boxes, but it might help us understand, is the idea of a, of a, of a play, a stage play. Somebody has an idea, there is a script, there is a plan, but that has to reach a point where it comes from being in somebody's mind to being turned into a script to then being demonstrated. All of that can be described as logos. It's, it's, it began with a thought and a plan, but it also found expression. And I'm not a Greek scholar and don't want to get lost in that, which we could do very easily. But when we keep that at least simple concept in mind and we go back to John 1, and we read that, inserting that understanding. Verse 1 says, in the beginning there was a plan, there was a thought, there was an intent. And that plan was with God, not as two separate things, but as a part of God. Because the next statement clarifies this, that plan was God. Amen. In verse 2 it says that that plan was there in the beginning with God. You see, in Genesis chapter 1, and hopefully I can bring all this together and it will make sense before we're done. Otherwise, there'll be a long list of people with questions when we close the service, which is okay. But in Genesis chapter 1, God began to express the plan that he already had. He didn't just randomly wake up and go, bang, oops, I just created things. He had a plan that existed before there was anything to see or touch. And when he began to say, let there be, that plan began to be demonstrated, acted out, or expressed. And creation began to take place. Prior to creation, the plan only existed in God's mind. There was nothing to see. You know, God, he already knew there's going to be an earth and a moon and all these other cool things spinning around in the solar system. But there was nothing to see. It was just the plan. But as he began to express himself, that which had only been in his mind began to become visible. And then when man eventually arrived on the scene... Fortunately, it was visible. We needed something to stand on. If he had made us before the planet, it might not have gone too well. But he made something for us to be able to stand on and to live on. And so with, that's just the basic idea of helping us understand the idea of Logos, that it includes not just a thought or a plan, but it also includes the expression or the demonstration of that plan. Amen. And so when God finished making everything, we'll get backwards and forwards a little bit here with the gospel of john but when god finished making everything in genesis 1 he finished what we know as the creation week and he looked at it and he said it's good in fact on the last day he said it's very good he was content with what he'd done but the plan wasn't finished yet there were more things that he had in his mind that had not yet become expressed or demonstrated and so, but throughout the Old Testament, if you know much of the Old Testament, you look at prophecy, you'll see that God was dropping hints about some of the parts of the plan that he was saving, that he hadn't demonstrated yet. He spoke in Isaiah 9 and 6, he said, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, 
And he said, a virgin shall conceive and be with child. He spoke about how from David's seed and Abraham's seed, there would come somebody that would be the savior of the world. And there are these hints sprinkled prophetically throughout the Old Testament of something that were like previews, if you like, of what was yet to be demonstrated. But then when God, I was going to say when he decided it was the right time, he already knew it was the right time. He didn't have to decide. But in Galatians 4, it says, when the fullness of time was come, when, it, when the plan came to that point that God knew this is where we act, it says that God sent forth his son, made born of a woman, born under the law. So when you take that and you go back to chapter 1 of John, if, if you're not there, please go back there with me because you need to see this. Go back to John chapter 1. And in verse 14, that same word that we spoke about in verse 1 that was referencing creation and God's original plan, that theme is carried on in verse 14 when it says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The same plan that God had at creation that was with God, that was God, became flesh and dwelt among us. Have I lost anybody? I hope not. I hope you're still with me. In 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16, to underline this, it says, Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. And so God had a plan. If you go back to Genesis... He made everything out of nothing, that there was nothing visible until he said, right, let this happen, I'll let that happen. Finished the creation week, made Adam, made Eve, said, this is good, we've done a good job. But mankind messed up and fell into sin. But when God created man, he knew that men would do that. So that plan was already in place. You see, we have to understand God's not reactive. God doesn't react to our problems. When we come to him, we say, Lord, you know, I've got this going on. I've got that going on. The Lord's not like, oh, what are we going to do about that? Um, hang on, I'll get back to you. I'll have to, I'll Google a solution. He already knew what the problem would be before we had the problem, before we even existed to have any problems. That's what makes him so awesome. And so his plan was never a patchwork response to the problems of humanity but rather it was designed in his own mind before he even made us so that knowing that we would need a savior he had that part ready in his plan so that when it was time that which was invisible would express itself in a visible form to provide a solution that did not exist until that point amen the birth of Jesus Christ at Bethlehem was a part of the plan that God had from before there was even an earth. Sometimes we start trying to think about God in human concepts and we sort of think, well, man was created and then man sinned and so the Lord came up with a backup plan. No, Bethlehem was already in the script before God said, let there be light. Before he even made this mud ball that we stand on, Bethlehem and Calvary were already written into the script. And that's really hard for us to understand because I've said this before and we'll say it again and it will, we will probably never really get our minds around it. Why make something that you know will fail 
that you're going to have to make a solution for before you even make it. If you were a car manufacturer, you would be rare because there's none of those left in Australia, but, and you thought, we're going to make a new vehicle that we know is going to break down. But when we make it, we'll make the parts we need to fix the problem. Wouldn't you fix the problem first? Of course you would. But he doesn't think like we think. And it, in his plan and in his script is the opportunity for him to demonstrate his love toward us. In that even when we were filthy and in sin, he commends his love toward us. And so the Lord used our corruption as a means to demonstrate his grace and his mercy towards us. Amen. Creation was the expression of his power. Bethlehem was the expression of his person. Two different things. One was, look at what I can do. The other one was, this is who I am. And he demonstrated himself, himself to us. And God's ability to speak about things that don't exist as though they do helps us understand that not only that creation was not just a platform for God to make man in his image, but it was also a stage where he would demonstrate his love for you and I. That's what creation was all about. It wasn't just making all the natural world and making humanity, but it was going to be an opportunity for the greatest demonstration of love that mankind has ever known. Amen. And we, we understand this morning, we're chatting to somebody just before the service, that Christmas and Easter are not really biblical concepts, at least not in the way that society sees them. But the reason for his birth was that so he might die. The reason he was born was so he might be able to give his life for us and to rise again. Why is all of this necessary? Go with me to Job chapter 9, if you would, in the Old Testament. Hopefully we can put this together a little bit and we'll add to it in weeks to come. By the time we get to Christmas, hopefully we'll have a greater appreciation of what the Christ child is all about. In Job, most of us are familiar with the book of Job, but Job, Job was a, a righteous man, godly man. He was a man that God had blessed mightily, had a good family plenty of material wealth. He was a righteous man. He took great care to make sure that his relationship with God was good. He took care to try to watch over his kids and offer sacrifice on their behalf. And he was a good man. And in, in some ways, a lesson for another day, but in some ways his righteousness almost kind of introduced his suffering because the devil decided to sort of challenge the Lord a little bit and the Lord had enough confidence in Job, more than Job probably had in himself. And the Lord allowed a period of suffering to enter into Job's life. And so when you read the book of Job, you see a man who goes through incredible suffering. And what you read so much about is his struggle to understand the why and the how of what's going on. And in chapter 9, that same sort of theme continues along. And, and Job, if you read the early, early verses later, you'll see that Job was basically acknowledging that God is so holy and so awesome that even if Job was somehow able to cleanse himself, there's no way he could reach a point where he could sort of be on par with God and be able to say, hey, what's going on in my life? Why have you done this to me? 
He was saying, even at my very best, he's still, he's basically saying there's no avenue for me to approach him. There's no way. And and in Job chapter 9 and verse 30, Job says, if I wash myself with snow water, it's an unusual expression, but it's obviously, it was considered to be a very pure kind of water. If I wash myself with snow water and make my hands never so clean, yet shalt thou plunge me in the ditch, and mine own clothes shall abhor me. Saying that God would literally plunge him in the dish. It was a comparison. He was saying, I'll still be filthy in your sight. Even if I wash myself to the best of my abilities, I'll still be filthy in your sight. And speaking about God, he said, For he is not a man as I am, that I should answer him and we should come together in judgment. He said, he's, We're not peers. <laughs> we're not equals. We can't sit down and say, Well, what's going on here? Let's sort this out. Why are you treating me so badly? He, he was saying, I, I don't have that opportunity. I don't have that privilege because I'm down here and God's up there. And even if I wash myself with snow water, I'm still going to be filthy in your sight. But then in verse 33, he said, Neither is there a daysman betwixt us or between us that might lay his hand upon us both. Let him take his rod Away from me, and let not his fear terrify me. Then would I speak and not fear him, but it is not so with me. He said, if there somehow there was the fear of God and his holiness, if I was able to deal with that, then I might be able to speak. He said, but that's not within me. I don't have that capacity. You see, a daysman, if you have a more modern translation of a Bible, a daysman is translated usually as a mediator. Someone who could be qualified to bring both parties together someone who was able to successfully interact with both and act on behalf of both. And that expression, there isn't a daysman between us that might lay his hand upon us both, when it speaks about laying his hand upon them, it's about being qualified to do so and having authority to interact in both arenas. Being able to come between Job and God and and to be suitable to meet with Job but also, on the other hand, be suitable to meet with God and to find a way to have the authority to bring those two together. Verse 33 in the New Living Translation says, If only there were a mediator between us, someone who could bring us together. Job's statement in many ways encapsulates the problem of humanity as a whole. We are born in sin. We are born with this corrupt nature, and from a very young age, we begin to do what we want, not what is always necessarily right. And sin begins to demonstrate itself through us because that's what's in us. And we find ourselves in a place where we are sinful, or as Job said, we're dirty in a ditch, and God is holy, and there is this immense gulf between us. And no matter how hard you try, or how hard I try, if you could get yourself some bottled snow water from somewhere and wash yourself with that stuff, you're not going to be able to ever attain to a standard or a level of cleanliness or righteousness that you can sit down at the table with God as an equal and say, let's talk. You cannot achieve that. And that was Job's expression of frustration. But Paul wrote to Timothy, in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 5, and he said, For there is one God 
and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And so this logos or this plan that God had from the very beginning, from before the beginning, was that at the exact time that he ordained it, this part of his plan would take place that those things that he'd hinted at throughout the Old Testament, all of those prophecies would see their fulfillment in a child born to a virgin in a manger in Bethlehem. And suddenly where there was nobody that could go between, now there is somebody that can go between us and God. We do not have the things that Job had. We can't say, I don't have somebody, because we do have somebody. We have somebody that is able to go between us, bridge that gap. He's able to lay his hand on us on one side and connect with our humanity. And on the other side, he's able to say, I'm sitting at the right hand of God in the place of power and authority. And miraculously, according to the plan of God, he can take those two extremes and he can bring them together. And even though we're not worthy, because of his sacrifice... We're able to sit down at the table with Jesus Christ, with God, manifest in the flesh. And he said, don't worry about your snow water. I can wash you in the blood of the lamb and I can make you righteous and I can make you holy and you can come into his presence and you can bring your petition to him. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. God who could not be seen, expressed himself in flesh so that we would have somebody like that daysman that could lay his hand on both of us. I want to finish with Revelation chapter 1 this morning. Revelation chapter 1. John is not in a good situation. He's in exile on the Isle of Patmos. He's been put there as punishment for being a preacher, basically. And he begins, he said he's in the spirit on the Lord's day and the voice of God begins to talk to him. And in verse 12 of Revelation 1, it says, And I turned to see the voice that spake with me. And being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks, which was symbolic from the temple in the Old Testament. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man. It was like Jesus, but there was something different. Clothed with a garment to the foot, and girt about his paps with a golden girdle, and his head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire, and his feet like under fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace, and his voice is the sound of many waters. And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth when a sharp two-edged sword on his countenance was as the sun shining in its strength. This is a little bit different from the Jesus that John had walked through, walked with, sorry, in Judea and Galilee and the places they went together. That, that man that was God manifest in the flesh that the prophet said there'd be nothing about him naturally that would cause us to be attracted to him. John saw somebody, he recognized the similarity with Jesus, but as he began to use this language it wasn't that jesus had brass feet or he had a literal sword coming out of his mouth but their statements of power and authority and holiness and glory 
and righteousness. John was absolutely amazed trying in best, the best he could with his limited vocabulary to try to put pen to paper and explain the vision that he was having. And John, just like Job, was overwhelmed with how amazing God is. Just like Job, he recognized that he was so pathetic in the presence of God because in verse 17, it says, And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. Similar sentiment to Job, but I love the next statement because it says, And he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not. I am the first and the last. I'm he that liveth and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and death. John got to see an image of the glorified, resurrected Christ. But Jesus reminded him that he's still our daysman. He's still the one that can lay his hand upon us. And somehow in ways that we cannot comprehend, bring us together with a holy God and help us to find salvation. Would you stand with me this morning? Thank you, Jesus. If I could have the musician, please, sister, stand. Hallelujah. This is what the incarnation is all about. God always had a plan because he knew there would come a point where there would be this standoff between sinful humanity and a holy God that we could do nothing to cross, to bridge, to reach across that divide. And so he said, I'll provide somebody. And that word which was with him before there even was a planet was made flesh and dwelt among us. If you read the Gospels, you'll see so many times it says, speaking about Jesus, and he laid his hand upon me, healed the leper, raised the dead, touched the sick, cleansed those that were demon-possessed. He laid his hand on them again, and again and again because he could not be corrupted but then at the same time he was God manifest in the flesh they went with him to that mountain and it says that he was transfigured he, his, his appearance changed before them and they were able to get a glimpse into where the other hand was in the presence in the throne room of God and this morning if you need God to lay his hand upon you he's here if you feel like you don't have the answers, you feel filthy, you feel like, God, I'm in that dirty ditch and I can't get out. Unlike Job, we have a daysman. We have a mediator. We have somebody that said, I can reach down to where you're at and somehow lift you up to where he 